Greetings and welcome to today's episode of Varying Viewpoints. My name is Tanisha Williams, and I have the honor of serving as a visiting scholar out of the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Institute. And we have two amazing guests here today to chat through critical race theory. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Angel Jones and Dr. Aaron Griffin. Great morning, everyone. Aaron Griffin. Uh, Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at DSST Public Schools in Denver, Colorado, and also uh, CEO and co-founder of Prosperity Educators, LLC. Great to be here. My name is Angel Jones. My pronouns are she, her, and Aya, and I am a visiting assistant professor at SIUE in Edwardsville, Illinois, in the teaching and learning department. I um, My work is rooted in critical race theory and critical race feminism and broadly looks at the impacts of racism on the mental health of Black folks. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Today's show is intended to provide a rudimentary overview of critical race theory from two scholars who make use of the framework in their scholarship. We are grateful to Dr. Griffin and Dr. Jones for not only spending some time with us today, but also for the contributions that they make to academia. Today's conversation is meant to achieve a few goals. We hope to provide a definition of critical race theory that listeners can easily access. We'll spend some time talking a bit about the original convening of the CRT scholars in July of 1989. We'll define some of the terms associated with critical race theory. We are fortunate enough to have two education-based scholars who will share how CRT is being used in education. And finally, we will end with some of the current myths in the media about CRT and try to make sense of what is verifiably fact and what is fiction. So that's quite a bit. So let us jump right in. Dr. Jones and Dr. Griffin, what is critical race theory? Please provide a short and simple definition for our listeners. I think when I think about CRT at a base level, all it really is is a theoretical framework that acknowledges the roles that race and racism play within the systems in this country. And those systems can be educational system, our injustice system, our health system, our political systems of just really acknowledging the roles that race and racism play. And to to add to uh, Dr. Jones's excellent definition, um, when you think of critical race theory through that theoretical, uh, theoretical lens, it crosses groups. It's not just like right now, people are trying to make it about slavery and they're only focusing on the racial aspect of it. Their folks are not thinking through the intersectionalities of it and how each of these areas that Dr. Jones just named impacts multiple groups of people in a very different ways. So let's Take a step back, though. You both mentioned this theoretical framework. So in terms of like providing a definition, a theoretical framework provides context for examining a problem or phenomenon. It is the blueprint that guides a line of inquiry. So I would love it if you translated that for folks. What? What is a theoretical framework? Who's using it? Why do people use it? And why is it even important? I think theoretical frameworks are important because I think it kind of keeps us in check. It acknowledges things that we sometimes, because we're human, might might forget. So when I'm looking at a problem or trying to come up with a solution, 
theoretical frameworks have what's known as tenets, right? So they are these little things that cause you to think about certain things, right? So when I think about the tenets of CRT, I'm thinking about, okay, what role is race playing? Um, am I acknowledging the voices and experiences of marginalized folks, right? Am I challenging dominant narratives, right? So not just going into it um, on, on my own accord, but making sure that I'm thinking about all of these other things as well. And yes, using a the theoretical framework, you look at outcomes and going back to impact. So when you use a, a theoretical framework, be it critical race theory or CRT, Latin crit, uh, feminist crit, queer crit, sped crit, whatever theoretical framework you want to use, you're using that framework to look at how we got to certain outcomes. And in addition to how we move past why this is happening and go to what is causing this. So what is causing a particular outcome? So as Dr. Jones mentioned, health, economics, communities, certain situations and outcomes that are happening and impacts on different people. And a good example that I love to use for people here in Colorado is the, the impact on the Texas grid going into blackout in winter and the impact it had on the most marginalized and minoritized communities. And we go back to what caused that. What caused that was an economic and a political decision. And without giving any thought to how this is going to impact people 10 years later who don't have the resources during a blackout, even if it's a 10% chance that the blackout is going to occur, we have to think about what is going to happen if it occurs. So had people thought about it through a theoretical framework and lens, they would have anticipated the potential outcome and impact it's going to have on the most marginalized people. But since they didn't do that, the grid went down, and then in reaction, people realized, OMG, look who's being impacted, because there was a political and an economic decision made versus a human decision being made. That is such a vivid and concrete example. Fantastic. So just in summary, a theoretical framework is a tool that's used to guide a line of inquiry to answer a question. In many cases, the major inquiry is around racial disparities. As scholars, we might ask, how is it that one group of people compartmentalized by race have one set of outcomes while another group of people of a different race have a completely different set of outcomes? These types of questions can be asked in determinations of law, in educational achievement and graduation outputs, in economic outcomes, and in health disparities, just to name a few. So thank you for that example and that contextualization of theory and how it is used. I want us to pivot into the historical convening that birthed critical race theory. We are fortunate to amplify audio from Kimberly Williams Crenshaw on her June 21st appearance on The Readout. In this audio clip, she provides a bit of context around the origins of CRT. Um, critical race theory is not so much a thing. It's a way of looking at a thing. It's a way of looking at race. It's a way of looking at why after so many decades, centuries, actually, 
since the emancipation, we have patterns of inequality that are enduring. They are stubborn. And the point of critical race theory originally was to think and talk about how law contributed to the subordinate status of African Americans, of indigenous people, and of an entire uh, group of people who were, were coming to our shores uh, from from Asia. Um, and the point was, quite frankly, to understand the problem in order to intervene in it, to understand why the greatest uh, uh, hopes for our republic were not being realized, even though these hopes were encoded in law. So critical race theory just inherits the uh, beliefs and the hopes of Frederick Douglass, of, of Martin Luther King, who basically want the law to do for the freed people what the law did for enslavers. And we picked that up in the 70s and 80s after the civil rights movement to say, okay, so now we've had this big civil rights movement. We have all these laws in the books, um, but things really aren't looking as different as they should if we are really the society that we say we are. So we put about the, the task of understanding how law wasn't just the neutral referee. Um, law wasn't always on our side. In fact, law was less on our side than four on our side. And we wanted to tell these stories in order to do better with the promises that are embedded in the Constitution. That's what's in critical race theory. So the very first convening of the legal scholars occurred on July 8th, 1989. Um, and in a 2002 piece, Professor Crenshaw recalls the uh, process of gathering those scholars together for the conference, and she actually gives details about the commonalities that bro brought those scholars together. This piece is called The First Decade Critical Reflections or A Foot in the Closing Door. In this, Professor Crenshaw writes, they quote, wanted to attract a specific audience who were looking for both a critical space in which race was foregrounded and a race space where critical themes were central. We wanted the conversation to start at a point beyond questioning critical theory on the one hand or race on the other. We wanted to play with folks who would not be dissuaded from the association with a leftist project, who were interested in defining and elaborating on the lived reality of race, and who were open to the aspiration of developing theory, end quote. When it comes to how the name came about, Professor Crenshaw writes, quote, we decided to go for broke. If we were going to give this inchoate thing a name, let it be a proper sign on the intellectual landscape. Critical race theory, end quote. And the last quote I'll share from that piece before I turn to you, Dr. Jones and Dr. Griffin, for um, what you know about this convening is one that I find to be pure poetry and prophecy. Um, Professor Crenshaw writes, quote, 10 years ago, I wondered, where do we take our sit-ins when the white only signs come down? When Kregsky closes its lunch counters and moves out of town, when power doesn't live where it used to anymore. What happens when the contemporary configuration of power doesn't have an address? When dogs and water hoses are traded in for numbers and tests? When gatekeepers are automated and exclusion is formulaic? When ideas are redlined and people are warehoused? These days, colorblind discourse is the virtual lunch counter 
the rationalization for racial power in which few are served and many are denied. Thus, in my fantasy, 10 years from now, the caption reads, Discursive Disobedience, Critical Race Theory Stages a Virtual Sit-In in American Consciousness, end quote. So, Taking a moment to pay homage to these scholars, I would love to just call out their names, and then I would love to hear from you, Dr. Jones and Dr. Griffin, about what you know about this convening. So first, let's um, pay our respect to those who are due our respect and recite their names. The members in attendance in the original CRT convening were Anita Allen, Tanya Banks, Derek Bell, Kevin Brown, Paulette Caldwell, John Calmore, Kimberly Crenshaw, Harlan Dalton, Richard Delgado, Linda Green, Trina Grio, Neil Gotanda, Isabel Gunning, Angela Harris, Mari Matsuda, Teresa Miller, Philip T. Nash, Elizabeth Patterson, Stephanie Phillips, Benita Ramsey, Robert Suggs, Kendall Thomas, and Patricia Williams. So please do tell, what else do you all know about this convening? Was, was very important for people to understand is that the people that convened were not all black people. They weren't all black and brown people. There were multiple races of people, multiple backgrounds, multiple economics, multiple experiences, multiple sexualities, multiple genders. And what people are trying to do right now is that people are trying to categorize critical race theory as a black theory and then somewhat a brown theory. But that when you ever, whenever we deal with racism in this country or any racial backlash, it's always geared towards an attack on blackness. And people are making critical race theory a black framework, and it's not. It's an intersectional framework across multiple races and multiple groups. So that's something that is important for people to know that that convening was not just black people. Yes. Um, I think when I think about that meeting, I think about a group of scholars that came together to help solve a problem. They saw what was happening in our world and the fact that uh, race was playing a huge role in, in our systems, right? That racism was playing a huge role, but it wasn't being acknowledged. So they came together to address that problem. And I'm grateful for their work. Aligned to the work of those greats, there are certainly others. On June 22nd, 2021, Professor Cheryl Harris was a guest on Make Me Smart with Kai and Molly. Professor Harris, author of Whiteness's Property, published in 1993, is the Rosalind and Arthur Gilbert Foundation Chair in Civil Rights and Civil Liberties at UCLA School of Law, where she teaches constitutional law, civil rights, employment discrimination, critical race theory, and race-conscious remedies. Professor Harris shares her sentiment around the work of critical race theory on that show. Let's hear that audio. I'll start by saying that those of us who identify with critical race theory and as critical race theorists were like millions of people who came into the street last summer and millions more who expressed support for a broader idea of real equality um, and for our practices to match the values we espouse. 20, 30 years ago, we had the same aspiration. And as law professors, we were focused on the law. And the question we were trying to grapple with is, 
why, despite the fact that we have had laws and legislation against discrimination since Reconstruction, all the way up through the Voting Rights Act, um, and that we've struggled for so many years to try to achieve it, that we continue to have huge racial disparities in society, basically across every dimension of American life, uh, whether it's education, health care, the law itself, housing. And our concern was that we needed to figure out what role law was playing in helping us achieve or in thwarting the goals that we had. So the basic issue was we had social inequality of serious dimensions that still was in existence even after the victories of the civil rights movement in the embrace of a so-called colorblind society. So we have a society committed to colorblindness, but we still end up with a lot of visible racial inequality. And we wanted to ask, what is the role of law in that? Dr. Jones and Dr. Griffin, please build off the context that Professor Harris provides us around this notion of colorblindness. Um, I think colorblindness is a cop-out. I think colorblindness allows people to deny the role that race and racism play in our society. Um, I think especially within education, I think a lot of teachers will say, oh, I don't see color. If you don't see color, you don't see your students, you don't see their struggle, you don't see their brilliance, you don't see them because every aspect of them is impacted in this country specifically by race and by racism. Um, So when I think about the difference of being not racist versus being anti-racist, right? So yes, you can be not racist, but like, are you doing something about it? And you can't become anti-racist if you're not acknowledging race and the race of your students um, and the roles that racism are playing in our systems. And the notion of colorblindness is, is a push towards objectivity and neutrality. And the, the thing with objectivity and neutrality is it accepts things as is. It accepts everything at face value, and it does not push back or challenge the notion that um, if you look at the data and if you look at the research and if you take subjectivity out and you take the person out, then this is reality. So when you hear people say, I don't see color, I don't see race, I don't see class, I don't see gender, I don't see sexuality, that means that they are giving way to the construct of our world and particularly the United States and how it was founded. So sticking with education, Education is is done through the lens of of whiteness from the beginning of time. The people who started the curriculum and all of this were white men and then white women later. So if education and the curriculum is written through that lens and we say, I don't see color, I don't see race, I don't see this, I don't see that, that means that I'm only looking at my students through that one lens instead of looking at my students through their own lived experiences, through their own lived reality. Because what I'm saying is your reality doesn't matter in this classroom and in the school. The only reality that matters is the reality of the people who wrote the curriculum and wrote the tests and wrote the rules. Their reality is what matters. Your reality does not. And and that's easy to do because that's less work we got to do. That means if I don't see your race and color and I want you to fit this narrative and fit this scope, I don't have to do additional research and additional work to get to know you and build a relationship with you, nor do I need to accept or acknowledge 
the experiences you encounter before you come to school, during school, and when you go home. And that's what you're hearing right now. Critical race theory divides us. Critical race theory didn't divide us. Critical race theory just tells you what has been the cause of that division and how that division is sustained through structures. And see, once people become aware of that, then we start to dismantle those structures. So colorblindness is about keeping those structures in place because it's easy. Thank you so much for that explanation. The way that you've elevated the intentional exclusion of diversity under the false pretense of a colorblind society really highlights a contemporary problem that we've seen repeated in history. In that last audio clip, Professor Harris referenced some of the tenets of critical race theory. Dr. Jones, you, you mentioned these tenets as well. Let's pause and provide a definition. What are tenets? I think when I think about tenets, I think that they're principles or they're parts of a theory that guide it. Um, so when I think about the tenets that I am focused on, I specifically look at critical race theory in, in education. So although it started out of critical legal studies, it has been adapted to multiple fields. Um, so I think about the five tenets that Dr. Danny Salorsino came up with. Um, so one, talking about uh, racism as, as endemic. The second one, challenging dominant ideologies and narratives. The third one, centering um, and valuing experiential knowledge. Fourth, being a commitment to social justice. And the last one, um, focusing on a transdisciplinary perspective where we're not just looking at education, but we're thinking about sociology and history, philosophy, and all of those other things when we're looking at a problem. So those are the five tenets in CRT and education. And some of the tenets that are outside of education, uh, the permanence of race, uh, to uh, interest convergence, the belief that dominant groups will align their interests with a marginalized group when there is an economic interest there. And then another tenet I look at too is the issue of, of counter-narratives. Having the most marginalized and minoritized and traditionally marginalized groups tell their story because people don't want to hear that story. And that is what's being attacked right now in education. That idea of not teaching the 1619 Project that idea of not having children discuss race and sexuality and gender. So it seems to me, it, or is it fair to say then that not every critical race scholar works with or through every tenant? That is very fair to say. When I look at these tenants, I don't, I don't function through all of them. However, Sometimes I, I look and see which one fits the circumstance to Dr. Jones's point. Like if there's a situation like I just named, if we have a situation where there's a sexuality concern with our girls, like our girls who are LGBTQIA, I look at that intersectional lens from, from, uh, from uh, Dr. Crenshaw, that intersectionality. So I'm looking at race, I'm looking at intersectionality, and I'm looking at other tenants to see which one of these is occurring to best address that situation with our girls who are LGBTQIA inside of school or even outside in the community. Let's pivot to some of the ways we've recently heard critical race theory described in the media. Critical race theory has been called Marxism. We've heard that critical race theory is the death of our future as a country. We've heard that CRT is racism and should be rejected by every American and every race. 
We've heard that critical race theory is designed to confuse people. We've heard that it's bigoted and every bit as racist as the Klansmen in white sheets. Critical race theory has been called a poison and a cancer that's affecting everyone. Critical race theory has also been characterized as a force that can make children hate their parents. Dr. Griffin and Dr. Jones, I would love for you to just take a beat and respond to some of the descriptions of critical race theory in the media. I think a couple of them stand out to me. Um, CRT is not racist. It calls out racism. Um, And I also believe that this idea that it's meant to confuse people just because you're confused doesn't make it confusing. Um, I think a lot of people are confused because they haven't done the work. They haven't read the books. They haven't read the articles. Um, So you should be confused if you haven't done the work to actually educate yourself. Because if you think about some of the interviews that we've seen, especially on Dr. Mark Lamont Hill's show, where he's talking to opponents of CRT and those who want to ban CRT, when he asks them what it is, or he asks them to name one of the tenants, they can't. Um, So I think a lot of the pushback is based on a lack of education, um, as well as the fear of losing the privileges that come with the racism in our society, right? There are people that don't want racism called out because then people would want to dismantle it and they're comfortable with the way things are right now. I love how you started that off, uh, Dr. Jones, and I love how you ended it. Um, Because this week I was having a conversation with some folks and I said, you know, there are people, I said, if people want to stop racism, people just need to stop racism. Like stop it, ban white supremacy ban white nationalist groups, ban the Ku Klux Klan, ban structures that cause um, disproportionate harm, but they won't. Because in order to do that, that means you individuals have to give up certain powers and privileges that they have as a result of racism. See, the confusion that people are getting is that there are groups of people who benefit from racism. They benefit from racial practices. So that's why people are confused because racism is supposed to be evil. So why is critical race theory bringing up racism? Because we're telling you how people benefit from racism, how people benefit from economic structures and health structures that disproportionately harm the most vulnerable and marginalized groups in our society to the benefit of corporations who make billions off of vaccines. You see, this is what this is why it's confusing. I really appreciate the way that you both responded and the context that you've provided. One thing that we can unequivocally say is that right now, critical race theory is under attack in the media and state legislators are responding. To add a bit more context, by June 2021, at least 26 different states have introduced legislative orders or resolutions that censor instruction on topics such as race, sex, and gender. Some of those orders distort history as to inhibit truth-bound discussions that should take place in the classroom. In addition, teachers and K-12 administrators are being harassed and in some unfortunate cases terminated from their positions. 
We know that there's been quite a bit of a debate over the 1619 Project and the inclusion of the Tulsa Race Massacre in history classes. Instruction seems to be changing. School board meetings have become spaces of political warfare. So there's definitely been a shift that has greatly impacted K-12 education nationwide. And I want to wrap us up by processing the notion of CRT being leveraged as a political strategy. Soledad O'Brien was a guest on the Laura Flanders show on July 1st. At the very start of her interview, she gives insight into the role that the media has played in the forefront and miscategorizing of critical race theory. Let's listen in. Now we go to Soledad O'Brien, former CNN host. She's been fighting disinformation in the media for years and recently testified in Congress before the House Subcommittee on Disinformation and Extremism. Soledad O'Brien, thank you so much for joining us. You have seen this kind of scenario before. Lay it out for us. How did critical race theory or the furor over it become a news story and in so many ways a news event. Yeah, it doesn't happen unless the news media decides to give an assist and in some ways play the both sides game. And you'll remember, I think one of the very first people who wrote about it was Peter Baker in the New York Times. And the headline of his piece was Trump more than ever casts himself as the uh, defender of white America. And he's talking about Donald Trump's memo, which essentially says um, that uh, he's going to ban racial sensitivity training. And he, the quote is this, divisive, false, demeaning propaganda of the critical race theory movement. So conflating those two things, Peter Baker of the New York Times could have said those are not the same thing. Right? He could have told people. Well, what is critical race theory? Uh, He chose not to do that. In fact, the failures, I think, with that very first piece back in September of 2020 were in not defining what critical race theory is. It's obviously very complicated. No better place to do it than in the pages of The New York Times. He took President Donald Trump's, a very well-known and recorded liar, his point of view and his definition and used that definition. And then, of course, others went on to quote The New York Times, et cetera, et cetera. So I think you start there with a pretty good example of a fail. And I think the media has repeated that fail over and over and over again. To supplement that, on July 11th, Sarah Jones published How to Manufacture a Moral Panic. Christopher Rufo helped incite an uproar over racism education with dramatic, dodgy reporting in the Intelligencer. Joan writes, quote, Last summer, Rufo seemed to come from nowhere, arriving on the scenes after a national uprising against racism to lead the charge against the supposed excesses of anti-racism education, branding it with a once obscure academic term, critical race theory. Armed with a prolific Twitter account and the backing of the conservative establishment, he brandished scoops about the widespread infiltration of the theory and eventually caught the attention of the Trump White House. In short order, he had transformed himself from a limited kind of Twitter star to a bona fide conservative influencer. The proof lies offline in the new moral panic he helped instigate. Republican operatives, legislators, and commentators, all professing concern for young hearts and minds, claim that children are being taught to hate white people, end quote. So a few months earlier, in March of 2021, Rufo actually tweeted, 
We have successfully frozen their brand, critical race theory, into the public conversation and are steadily driving up negative perceptions. We will eventually turn it toxic as we put all of the various cultural insanities under that brand category. The goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. We have decodified the term and will recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans. I would love to hear your thoughts on critical race theory being used as a political strategy. I think a lot of politicians, um, particularly those on the right, have been using CRT um, as fear as fear mongering, right? Like they're trying to incite um, fear. They're trying to get people to be afraid of anything that pertains to race um, under this ridiculous notion that it's going to hurt their children. Um, so I feel like that's why they're so big on banning it in K-12, even though it's not being taught in K-12, right? But attaching it to children, I think, just adds and heightens this ridiculous fear. Um, so now everything that sounds like race or could be race is now being banned or come for by politicians um, because they're trying to make people afraid so that way they can vote against anything that will call attention to the racism that is um, permanently embedded in our systems. And that is a word. Dr. Angel Jones can be found at Angel Jones, PhD, and Dr. Aaron Griffin can be found at Dr. Aaron J. Griffin across all social media platforms. Thank you both so much for joining us. We look forward to your continued scholarship and all that you have to provide to the academy and to public education. This has been another episode of Varying Viewpoints. Until next time, stay safe, stay diligent, and remain informed. Mm-hmm.